This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, you have called us into your kingdom and you have made us into your family, sons and daughters by grace, so that we might show no partiality to one another. We pray that we would not be hearers of this word only, but doers. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So today we're continuing our series through the epistle of James. And last week, Father Jonathan opened this series by helping us to see that this epistle is focused on the creation of disciples whose lives look like what they profess. He stressed, and I want to stress again today, that James is not a moralistic text, but it's a deeply grace-filled text. But what grace means for James is not just the declaration that you're forgiven and Jesus loves you. Grace is that for certain, because the declaration of Christ's forgiveness is the sure scaffolding that holds us up. It's the thing without which we could never be in relationship with him, and without which we could not be sustained in that relationship. But for James, and for the rest of the New Testament, grace is living and active. It recreates us and refashions us and propels us into action. So that when by God's grace we have come to have faith in Jesus Christ, that faith is proved genuine by how it gets to work. Just as Christ said a tree is proved by its fruits, so with James there's no question that we can only know our faith is genuine if we see it enacted in the community. Here's what he says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. That is, faith cannot be considered genuine if it is not accompanied by actual discipleship to Jesus. Anyone can say, I believe. But what James says is, show me. Show me that you believe. So because of this, Martin Luther famously dismissed James as an epistle of straw. And he regarded it as only spuriously attributed to an apostle. He says, this James does nothing more than drive to the law and all its works. He mangles the scriptures and is thereby opposed to Paul in all scripture. But Luther himself is then forced to confess that faith is never alone. It is always and immediately accompanied by works that prove its genuineness. Here's what he says in his preface to Romans. He says, faith is God's work in us that changes us and gives new birth from God. It kills the old Adam and makes us completely different people. It changes our hearts, our spirits, our thoughts, and all our powers. It brings the Holy Spirit with it. Yes, it is a living, creative, active, and powerful thing, this faith. Faith cannot help doing good works constantly. It doesn't even stop to ask if good works ought to be done, but before anyone asks, already it does them and continues to do them without ceasing. Anyone who does not do good works in this manner is an unbeliever. That's Luther, okay? Champion of faith alone. He's saying, this is what faith is. Faith is something that is living and active and goes to work. 
So you see, Luther has to recognize that there's ultimately no dichotomy between St. Paul's accent on faith and St. James's accent on works. Because faith that is genuine always proves itself by the good works of the kingdom. And as Anglicans, that's what we believe, teach, and confess. What we believe, teach, and confess is set forth in part in the 39 Articles of Religion. Article 12 there says quite plainly that good works cannot put away our sins. The foundation, the scaffolding, that's Christ's declaration that we are forgiven. Our good works cannot right the relationship between God and us. Only the faithfulness of Jesus Christ the Messiah can do that. But at one and the same time, good works are the fruit of faith. They are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith. You get that? True faith is a lively faith that is already busy doing good works. And that's just the teaching of James. So what James is ultimately teaching, I think, is the centrality of commitment in the Christian life. The centrality of intentionality, of commitment. What James is teaching is that for those of us who have come to profess that the true story of the whole world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel must become the reference point for everything that we do in the world. We have to offer our whole lives to Christ as a reasonable sacrifice, as Paul says, or a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, as the author of Hebrews says. And that's why my friend and my mentor, Hunter Dockery, a pastor in North Carolina, did a sermon series on the book of James that was entitled, How to Be a Beautiful Human Being. I love that. I stole it from him. I told him I was going to steal it from him. You want to be a beautiful human being? A human being who helps to bring forth in the world everything that is true and beautiful and good and noble? That's only going to happen as our lives, not only as individuals, but as a community become more and more conformed to this gospel of the Lord that we profess. So Archbishop John Tillotson in the 18th century, not an admirable theologian or bishop by any stretch, obviously not endorsing everything that he says, but he says this one really amazing thing. He says, it's possible not only to be a theoretical atheist, but also a practical atheist. It's possible to profess the form of godliness and deny the power thereof, as St. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.5. Why is that? Why is it possible to have this divorce between what we profess and how we act? Because loyalty is painful. It requires sacrifice. It requires us actually to develop the capacity to say no to our lesser desires so that we can say yes to our greater desire to be loyal to Christ. This is a character that's been sorely lacking, it's safe to say, in all human beings everywhere since the fall. But the social theorist Charles Taylor sees the development of loyalty as a unique challenge to those of us who live in what he calls a secular age. Taylor says that the widespread awareness of the pluralism of beliefs and ways of living in late modernity has caused what he calls a nova effect, the opening of a tremendous array of possibilities for what we might do and who we might be and what we might believe. And this Nova effect has made fragile all forms of belief and belonging in all communities everywhere. The reason for that is that everything is thrown back upon us as individuals to decide. It's up to us as individuals to decide what is good, what is true, what is worthy of commitment. Francis Fukuyama in his new book, Identity, that just came out this month, he says, most people do not receive this overwhelming individualism in every sphere of life as a good thing. He says, the vast majority of people 
do not rejoice at their newfound freedom of choice. Rather, they feel an intense insecurity and alienation because they do not know who their true self is. And the reality is that we were never meant to be autonomous self-creators. We were created as image bearers of the living God to be in communion with him and with each other, to serve his kingdom and his temple. What Taylor is saying is that we late modern Christians hold shallow commitments to our beliefs and we're placed in a position of perplexity and doubt as to their veracity and the worthiness of commitment to them because we're also part of the secular age. We are actually secular people because that's our environment. Now, I know I'm about a decade behind in this cultural reference, so please forgive me. Once upon a time, I was hip and I was al courant on every musical reference, but I am now an old man and a dad, and therefore I'm a decade behind on everything. So I just recently became aware of the band Fleet Foxes and their haunting song, which is called Helplessness Blues. And I think this song sketches what it feels like to be a late modern person, a person who's living through this secular age. Here's how that song begins. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. But I don't, I don't know what that will be. I'll get back to you someday soon, you will see. That haunts me. I feel that. I don't know if you feel the plausibility of that, but I feel it. To be a late modern person, to be someone living through the secular age is painful in this particular way. We naturally long for community and for common purpose, but the decision is forced upon us to decide what that community and what that common purpose is going to be. And this produces paralysis. We're in a kind of permanent limbo, halfway in, halfway out, halfway deciding to commit ourselves and halfway deciding to leave. And this produces tremendous weakness and a lack of resilience, both in us and in all the institutions of which we're a part. We long to commit, but we're not sure whether we should commit. And we're not sure what we should commit ourselves to. But if we read our contemporary situation in the light of James, which is what we should do, we see immediately that we don't have the option to commit or not commit to something. It's not possible to stand in the neutral space. We will commit to something. If we don't commit to the Christian story, we will commit to the default story of American culture. See, James's audience, the early Christians, were tempted to believe the default story of the ancient world, which is that wealth is the sign of divine approval and favor, and therefore the rich should be recognized, the poor not so much, because the poor are cursed. Only if Christians deeply rooted themselves in the reality that they had been given a gift in Christ that they did not deserve, James says, could they overcome this native tendency to privilege the rich over the poor. So likewise, if we're not committed to the gospel in the secular age, we will implicitly be committed to the secular American story. And that default story can be summed up in a single sentence. I am my own. That's the heart of the secular understanding of the self. I have no master. I am an autonomous, self-creating, self-interested utility maximizer. In this story, I am a self-interested atom surrounded by a sea of other self-interested atoms. I'm only in relationship insofar as I choose those relationships. And I only choose those relationships based on whether there's something in it for me. Of course, this story dovetails in many ways with the ancient understandings of wealth. 
The poor typically don't have much on the surface anyway to offer. I quoted that uh, political theorist Francis Fukuyama earlier. He also says this, to be poor is to be invisible to your fellow human beings. And the indignity of invisibility is often worse than the lack of resources. See, it takes great commitment and energy and communal support to go against this. If you do what comes naturally in America, you will be a consumer and have only transactional relationships, which are beneficial to you. That's the American way of life. You will only put your faith into practice. We will only do this as a church if our faith is living, as James says. The great G.K. Chesterton once put it this way, a dead thing goes with the stream, but only a living thing goes against it. A dead thing goes with the stream, only a living thing goes against it. So what James is saying is this. This is how I interpret it anyway. To be a Christian in your attitude is just to be a touch punk rock. Just saying. (laughs) You have to be willing to go upstream and to be willing to be in a conflictual and uncomfortable and complex negotiation with the standards of your culture. But it's just a touch punk rock because Christians don't pursue being against the grain for its own sake, but rather because the gospel inherently puts us in that position of tension because it teaches us to say no to sin and yes to Christ. It teaches us that we have a dignity and a status that we did not earn and we do not deserve because Jesus has loved us and made us part of his family. James begins chapter 2 by saying, my brothers and sisters. Just like other places in the New Testament, what James accents is that the church is a kind of family. It is the family of those who have been adopted as sons and daughters of God in Christ by faith and by baptism. It is an unbelievable privilege to belong to the family of God by grace. The New Testament authors are bowled over by it. It's the whole basis of Christian discipleship. And this elated shock of being made co-heirs with Christ has echoed down through the ages. I'll give you just one example. In the 5th century, Pope Leo the Great preached a sermon exhorting his people to overcome sin. You know how he grounds that message? Do you know what his motivational structure is for that? Christian, remember your dignity. Remember your dignity so that you can say no to sin and yes to Christ. Remember that you belong, that you are a co-heir with Christ in the kingdom of God. That's what James is saying. James is also saying that in this household, just like whatever households we grew up in, we don't get to choose our family members. We don't get to choose who belongs in this family because everyone who belongs in it belongs to it because God has given them the, the gift of belonging, just as he gave it to us, the free gift of grace. The church is the one place left in American culture where we don't get to choose those with whom we're in a relationship. As much as church shopping has dominated American Christianity for the past half century, it has remarkably not changed this fundamental fact. You don't get to choose your church family. Whoever is here is whoever is here. And it's these people, whoever comes to faith in Christ in this community, is who we are to love with the love of Christ. And so James goes on to say, my brothers and sisters, believers in our our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. There are two critical things to highlight here. James is saying that the condition for not showing favoritism 
is that you are a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a close link between the commitment to the Christian story and this embodied behavior that James saying flows from it as a consequence. And the second consequence is that the grace of God which has come to you in Jesus Christ has absolutely fundamentally leveled all of the arbitrary distinctions we set up to distinguish and privilege human beings over one another. All of us are recipients of a gift of which we are not worthy, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And all of us are therefore in the same relationship to him and to each other. All of the distinctions we make between each other, between other human beings, are meaningless in light of this gospel. In Christ, as St. Paul has said, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. And the proof of that fact that we have received this grace that obliterates these distinctions is that we put into practice what is true about us as a result of that grace. And chief among the markers that James says we, we know uh, that we use in order to privilege some people over others is wealth. It's always been the case. It was the case in the ancient world, and it's the case today. It's as true for the modern secular story as it was for the stories of the ancient world. Because we know wealthy people can do something for us, potentially. And poor people can't. That's what we natively assume. The provision of resources, therefore, the sharing of our resources, is a demonstration, a palpable demonstration, that we are not privileging rich over poor. But what James primarily calls us to in this passage is personal relationship, acknowledgement, recognition, equal dignity given to the poor. Treating the poor, in essence, as if they were rich, because in Christ, they are rich. They are co-heirs together with us of his kingdom. James is saying that if we give more attention and status and standing in the church to the rich than the poor, we have betrayed the gospel. What do you have that you did not receive? St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. The early Christians recognized the earth-shattering, cosmos-shifting nature of this teaching, and they strove to put it into practice in their own congregations. We have tons of textual and archaeological evidence from the ancient world that highlights just how compelling it was to pagans in the ancient world when Christians actually did this, when they actually put it into practice. And they did. We see sermon after sermon among the church fathers in which priests and bishops pleaded with their congregations not to privilege the rich over the poor. One of my favorite of these sermons is by St. Ambrose, the bishop of Milan in the 4th century, who was instrumental in the conversion of Augustine. And he says that even nature demonstrates the truth that Jesus has taught us about not showing partiality. Here's what he says. Who can tell the classes of dead men apart? Open up the earth and find the rich man if you can. All right. Here's the, here's the part that I really like. Perhaps you can prove it by this one fact, that there is more junk rotting beside a rich man. <laughs> you are anointed rich man, but you stink all the same. <laughs> Ambrose. I love him so much. Can we imagine what would happen if we were committed to the Christian story above the American secular story? What James tells us is that the first place we would see the effects of this would be in this assembly, this gathering, where we have been made into one family by the sacrifice of Christ. What would happen if here in this assembly, in this congregation, we were all in on the gospel story, if our faith in this gospel was a lively faith, demonstrable in all of our engagements with one another, visible in all of our community groups, visible in all of our interactions in the parish hall, when we see each other in the grocery store. Wouldn't that be amazing? 
We showed no partiality in any of these artificial ways in which we've divided humanity. No partiality in wealth. No partiality in politics. No partiality in race. No partiality in ethnicity. No partiality in gender. What if we love one another as if we were brothers and sisters? What would happen in this congregation, I will tell you this now, is that strongholds of bitterness and dissension and division would be broken down permanently and for good. We would recognize the dignity of one another. We would see each other and hear each other. We would see the glory of Christ renewing and transforming work in each other. We'd be able to spot it and highlight it and push it forward in each other and encourage one another in good works, just as Scripture tells us we're supposed to do. We would use our resources to take care of each other. And I tell you that the goodness of that enactment of the gospel would not stay here, but it would be a beacon cast with 10,000 watt voltage to all of Pittsburgh. Whether you know it or not, Pittsburgh is paying attention to what we're doing here. Because everyone, whether they know it or not, secretly wishes that the gospel story were true. What they desperately need is to be able to see and feel that it is. And you and I this morning can show that it is. That is the message of James. In a few minutes, we're going to come to the Lord's table where he is going to feed us with his own divine life. One of my favorite Eucharistic liturgies in the Anglican tradition is the Kenyan liturgy. When the bread is broken and the wine is served, the celebrant says, Christ is the host and we are his guests. Christ is the host and we are his guests. Jesus will feed you this morning if you come to his table by faith. You too will be a recipient of a gift that you did not deserve. And then you will have the opportunity to commit yourself fully to the story of the gospel and to enact it, to show no partiality, because Jesus has put humanity back together again where we before had ripped it apart. Let Christ put you back together as his body and let the love between us be genuine. Let us show no partiality so that what we profess with our lips may also be true in our lives. Amen.